questions from, I know I threw a lot and I know it's late, so you may not have any, and that's fine if you don't, but what kind of question do we have working through the, any of the Gospels, Acts, Epistles? Here. Um, I saw that, uh, well, the question I have is what does keep the Gospel pure really mean? Um, are we playing in this elliptical tar pit of... Tar pit? Uh, I call it a playground. Well, there's the playground, but then there's the tar pit. Uh, I don't know about the tar pit. Well, the tar pit is going back to Judaism, and then there's this immorality thing of, oh, well, I can do whatever I want, so uh, I don't know if it's just like sleeping around with people or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, trading partners in marriage or any kind of thing, yeah. And the question is? Uh, what does it mean to keep the gospel pure? Is that kind of the essence of it? Or, uh, yeah. Is that a phrase I use a lot? Are you quoting scripture somewhere? I'm trying to think if there's what translation is using that where. Is there something you have to uh, in mind? It, it's, it showed up in your notes somewhere. Oh, okay. Well, then so. cross it out because I don't like the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I would think it's my obligation to keep the gospel pure. I think that's got to be God's job. Okay. I don't think any of us wake into a day where we want to say, I've got to be perfect today. That's God's goal and mine. And anything short of that's a disappointment. I, I don't, be holy as I am holy is an invitation to a journey. It's not an on-off switch. But keeping it pure, if we're going to use that terminology, to me would mean the same thing I've talked about, this passion for truth. And so I, I, if I'm not seeing truth clearly now... And I've often said to people, the Wayne of today, if I had met me 20 years ago, that Wayne would have thrown me out of my office. Mm -hmm. And I know that's true because I'm rewriting a book I wrote 20 years ago. And I, people have asked for this book on the vineyard to come out again, which I grew up on a vineyard, so it's Farmer's View of John 15. I want to do this book. The problem is I started reading it going, I don't like the guy who wrote this book. He's obnoxious. He's top-down. The content is wonderful. I love the content. I hate the presentation. So I thought we were just going to have some reformatting, and I was going to put it out again. I've had to rewrite it. Because I don't like that guy, which for me has been great to see how much God has changed. Now, if he was asking me 20 years ago, am I keeping the gospel pure? I would have said, man, absolutely. And I thought I was. But found out that, man, I was misguided about a lot. And I was really into a conformity-based kind of environment, and there wasn't a whole lot of love and grace in it. But on, as I said, on the love and grace side, there's always two dangers to fall off of. The licentiousness, we'll just do whatever we want. The legalism, eh, we can't just live in love. We've got to work hard to keep the gospel pure. And I think that's where it becomes a deception. I think I, I just want to keep saying to God every day, Father, let me live in your truth. And when I read the scriptures, I, I look for things that say, ooh, man, if this is true, then this thing in my life is going to need to shift some. It's not in a good place. And I don't mind doing that. I don't mind saying, God, I'm seeing something here. And I'm going to look for other scriptures to see if I can find a loophole and get a way out of that. But it's not, <laughs> not, not seriously. I'm really going to say, God, keep changing me. And he's just having a heart for purity, having a heart for the simplicity of a growing relationship. That's how I would see it. But I don't know where it is in my notes. It sounds scary. <laughs> Sarah, find that in my notes. Huh? It's in Second, second, second Timothy, Timothy, Sarah. Make a note. We may have to take a look at that. And maybe something that Timothy says. Yeah, Lisa. You've talked continuously about living loved. And um, the, the more that we trust, uh, the, more we, uh, the more we understand how much we, we're loved, the more that we trust. And something that struck me when you were talking in an earlier session was it seems like we are most able to realize we fall short when, uh, when I realize how much he loves me. There's so much safety in that recognition. It reminds me a lot of what uh, you wrote in your book. And so that seems like so counterintuitive, um, just the thought of recognizing 
and not needing to defend when we understand how much we're loved. So I don't know that I have a question, except that um, that dynamic is still a mystery to me, how that... The counterintuitiveness of it? Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's true, and I've said this a lot in other places, is because we think of love in human terms, and we can say, gosh, we loved our parents, but as we got older, we were doing things we knew our parents wouldn't approve of behind their back, and so we think, we think of love as a pretty weak reality. You can love somebody, and that love basically allows us to serve ourselves and just kind of be nice. So I think our intuitive sense of love is it's pretty weak. And I could say I love God and really just try and sneak around doing stuff I want. I think what I've discovered, and I, and I think I would have taught that way again 20 years ago. I've been part of what that teaching would have looked like. What I've discovered in my own life is the more secure I am in God's kind of loving, which isn't a self-based kind of love. When we talk about love humanistically, we're basically saying there's something about you I really like, and so if you benefit me in some way and I benefit you in some way, we might have a friendship and we can talk about loving each other. And then if one of us does something that offends the other, then we can say we don't love each other anymore and the friendship breaks up. And our, our sense of love is very self-dominated. God's kind of love is very self-giving. Greater love has no end than this, that a man lay down his life. For his friends. I think what Jesus and the Father knew, if we could win them inside this relationship of affection, it would change the way they live because sin is the result of my doing what I do because I'm afraid God's not going to take care of me. So I got to take care of myself. When I'm more one into how much he cares for me and he's going to provide for my life what I need today, I don't have to grab for myself what God hasn't given me, which is basically what Eve and Adam are doing in the garden. And so I think, yeah, it is counterintuitive. And it is not just the principle of love leads to transformation. I beat that over the head all the time. When I'm talking about living love, I'm talking about inside a real relationship with the presence of the Father and Son and Spirit in our lives. So that I am loved by a person, by, by a personality in the universe. It's hard to describe what that looks like for God exactly. But I'm being loved by that entity, and I'm getting to know that entity. And the more I get to know him, man, I want to be like him. He has all the best stuff on the planet. He thinks better about everything than I think. I used to you know, read scriptures like that. You know what? You know what? He talks about praying and uh, Ephesians three, the prayer about God exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or imagine. It talks about God in our prayers, and we thought that meant well. If I pray for a, a Toyota, God might give me a Lexus, or if I want a two bedroom home, He give me a four bedroom home. And it, it really wasn't that. It's just every situation you're in, when God's not answering the prayer I, I want answered, because I want this person dealt with, or hurt or you know some of David's prayers wiped them out from the face of the earth and I prayed some of those prayers at times um, and I just know that's not that's not what he's doing he's doing something better I'm usually praying for my own comfort God's involved in my life for my transformation and for his unfolding purpose in the world the more we engage him as a real presence the more despicable sin looks to us I, I think that's true and we end up not living in sin as much because something's become more endearing not because we followed some rule. So I know it's counterintuitive, but I tell you, it, it's transformed more in my life in the last 15 years than the previous 42. When I was a, a good slave and Pharisee, I was working hard. I could keep the rules. It wasn't that I couldn't work hard. I did. Externally, I was fine. Internally, there's this arrogance that's destructive to people. I know what that is. And that's what Paul said. Chiefest of Pharisees made me the chiefest of sinners. And it was not just being humble there. I became so righteous in myself that I was killing people who didn't measure up or didn't agree with what I agreed with. And so the, the only thing that transforms, I think John is on that page. I think Paul's on that page. 
the only thing that transforms us is knowing how loved we are by Him and learning to live inside that reality. But it's not just a principle. It's not just, okay, He loves me. I'm trying to figure out He loves me. Okay, I'm going to try and act like that. It's really engaging a presence inside that love that's transforming. Anybody else? Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I want to talk about kind of the, I love the way the story is being told as far as seeing the overview and then diving down in deeper to, to, to discover that. Uh, most of my life has been underneath teachings of, uh, you know, the proof texting as you refer to it, or the Schofield method or expository where you're just down on the, the bottom level. What drives that? What, where does that come from? Is it, is it a product of some sort of fear? Is it something just comes out of the, our institutions that are training our leaders, the pastors? Where, where do you see that being driven from, that we're, we're worried about the details and the rules, and, and we've, we've missed this whole Abba side of the story? Maybe different places in different generations. I mean, for, for the Galatians, we look at them. They, they lost that just because, as Paul said, you wanted something to boast about in your own flesh. So I think that's part of it. I think principled theology or living by guidelines does give, particularly those of us who are good performers, and I think about 10% of us make good Pharisees, we're good performers, and I think about 90% of us, just boy, performing, I just can't make my strength of will do that. Um, it makes us have this false sense of security that we can somehow control God, that if I do A, B, and C, God has to do D, E, and F. And it's that illusion of control that I think is endearing. I think, gosh, I'd like that to work. I also think when we traded the presence of Jesus for a rule book, as we talked about last night, the Word of God became the book, not the presence of Christ, then academics became the leaders. People who understood the Scriptures academically the best, they became the fodder for creating the kinds of people that then became leaders and teachers in our communities. And it's easy to access the academic understanding of Scripture and reduce it to a set of principles and applications so people can try and live better lives. That's easy to teach. And I think it just becomes the way to do it. And then it becomes unquestioned. It's obviously, it's in the scriptures, this is the way we should live, so just live that way. And it all comes back to then our own sense of will and accomplishment. And Paul says this gospel really gets you to the point of, I put no confidence in my flesh to live this life. And the guidelines and principles don't get you there. So I think it's a combination of things. It's, it's certainly the act. We've given leadership of congregations to successful academics at very young ages, more and more, of people who haven't even gotten to a place that Paul describes in Timothy and Titus, of a life of character demonstrating your life and your relationship to your children and your business. And we've taken people and we made it a profession. So you become, quote, unquote, an elder, pastor, overseer, whatever, at 25, fresh out of seminary. When you've got no life experience whatsoever and no demonstration of character. And then we wonder why 10, 15 years later, there's no character in these lives who've learned to live on the front of a stage telling other people what to do and don't have a clue to do with their own lives. And their own well-being is tied to the other people doing what they want, so they like they've got a successful church. I think it's just a whole system that's easier to take us away from the stirring desire for relationship and replace it with... Even for a lot of people, Sunday morning, I just go to church on Sunday at 10 o'clock and put in my guilt time, and then the rest of the week's mine. I can do whatever I want. And, that's kind of, and that just becomes an easy icon to trick ourselves with. We were talking about this a little bit before, and I use the analogy of it's like a teddy bear. It's this little safety blanket or, you know, the kid has that really doesn't provide anything other than the perception. As long as it provides a perception, there's some reality with it. I think the reasons are many. But it doesn't change the invitation. And now tomorrow we're going to look at the Old Testament and all the ways that this was being led up to. The story I've just told you from the new is the fulfillment of the old. It's not the counterpoint to the old. 
It's the fulfillment. And we'll take a look at that tomorrow.